Podcast for America is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, covering America one story at a time. Weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello from the Slate Studios in New York City. This is Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the communicable hell flu that is a presidential campaign cycle. (laughs) I'm laughing at my own jokes. I'm Alex Wagner of MSNBC, and with me from our studios in Washington, the nation's capital, is the great Annie Lowry, contributing editor with New York Magazine. Mark Leibovich of the New York Times is away on assignment or tracking grouse. We're not sure which. (laughs) We have a very, very special guest with us today in studio in DC, and we'll do the big reveal in just a moment. But first, here's what we're talking about today. Will he or won't he? Do we care or don't we? Run, Joe, run. Don't run, Joe. Don't run. By the time this podcast airs, the vice president may have decided on whether he's going to throw his hat in the ring to be the president of the United States. And that decision cannot happen fast enough if you ask us. Seriously. We're so ready for this decision, we can't even tell you. We'll talk about that, and we'll talk about Hillary Clinton and what might happen to her this week with the big Benghazi hearing. And then we're going to talk about the chaos among House Republicans trying to find a new leader in the wake of John Boehner's departure and Kevin McCarthy's unceremonious bow-out. And then finally, we're going to play you a little bit of our chat with presidential candidate Lindsey Graham. All that and so, so much more. Annie, you're sitting next to a man in the studio in D.C. Can you reveal to our listeners who he is? Yes, he is one of our best political magazine writers, especially better than Mark. It is <laughs> so much better than Mark. So much better than Mark. Thank God we have an actual professional in here at this point. This is Glenn Thrush. Better and balder. Mm. Oh, that's a high bar there, my friend. High bar. Uh, okay, Glenn. So today I I got a text message from one of my friends who quite literally may live under a rock as far as all American politics are concerned. And she said, okay, I hate to bother you with this, but Biden 2016, it's like literally the first time she has ever asked me about anything political ever. This fantasy nightmare, this decision has become all encompassing. It has penetrated even to the deepest pores of our American skin. I mean, Annie, you were overseas, right? And this was this. I mean, yeah. So I was people know about this. I was hanging out with some Greek anarchists last week that were assisting in the relief efforts for the Syrian migrants who are crossing Greece to try to get to Germany and elsewhere in Europe. And one of them at one point was like, so Donald Trump? (laughs) I was like, I don't know either, man. I have nothing to tell you that's of use here. We can't tell you American politics is actually the clown show, Glenn. And like this Biden decision or whatever it is has completely engulfed what is already a hot flaming dumpster fire. Well, as you know, October is National Shit or Get Off the Pot Month. (laughs) So I think we're going to get some sort of an announcement from this guy. I think the pre-campaign to me would be a pretty good indicator of what the actual campaign would be. A small Hmm. group of extremely emotional and disorganized people telling (laughs) everybody different things at the same time. Wait, give us a peek behind the curtain. No, I will not. Not that curtain. The the idea that the Biden campaign is seeding different narratives to the press. I mean, that seems... It's entirely... Like, that's not strategy anymore, right? That's just total chaos. There is no strategy. Joe Biden is not strategy. Joe Biden is whatever the hell Joe Biden is. Look, you know, I did a profile of him about a year ago, and all the same factors are completely operative. The guy is 
very emotional, uh, very sort of connected with his own legacy, and I think very indecisive, as I think the last couple of weeks have shown. There's just been a ton of leaks to everybody. You know, he's having a con- one day he's having a conversation with the firefighters union chief. Then we get this weird forced hostage letter from Ted Kaufman, his friend, saying the kind of campaign. I've never seen anything like this before. The kind of campaign that he would possibly run. You know, it's just I think the problem is Biden has exhibited all of the same attributes that he exhibited in 2008 when he finished with less than one percent in Iowa. Wow. And the sad part about it is he started off in this process with a lot more political capital. Now. There's two or three things that could happen in the next couple of weeks if he decides to run that could completely change that dynamic. One is like a 15 or 20 percent spike in the polls based on people being excited. And the other one is is some sort of a collapse by Hillary Clinton uh, in the Benghazi hearings. I don't think either of those two things are particularly likable. So I, like everybody else, think that this might be a little bit of a suicide mission. So let's let's presume that he's getting in. How much does that perhaps strengthen Hillary? How much does it make some people come in and say, I'm not going to support you as a candidate? Does it draw staffers and money towards her? Is there any world in which that happens, presuming that the Benghazi hearings aren't yeah. revelatory? Polls have shown, the crosstabs of all the polls that I've seen recently have shown that when Biden enters the race, he draws uh, support away from Hillary, not not from Bernie Sanders. Right now, he dropped in a couple of polls from around the 18% to 15% or 20 to 16% in that range. So I think in terms of his draw, he pulls stuff away from Hillary. I mean, they're both their profile is not dissimilar. I think the issue is staff. There is no staff to be had that isn't in the amateur hour category. I mean, there's just nobody who's unaffiliated. I hear that, you know, there's some consultants out there who've done Biden races in the past. The best one that I've heard is, is Paul Tews, who uh, part of the, the firm that did some of the Obama stuff in 2008, a, a good field guy. You know, there's some flax out there who are kind of floating around in the ether. You got, I mean, Jay Carney's spoken for, Biden's former spokesman and the former White House press secretary. He's over at Amazon beating the hell out of the Times. Um, <laughs> you got Marie Harf, I heard, the former State Department spokeswoman, who who I think is is pretty good, but she was a controversial figure in the Obama administration. The bottom line is there are, there's not a lot of talent. And the truth of the matter is Obama kind of drained the bench anyway. All the really talented Obama people are now on the West Coast making half a million bucks a year. So... Had he entered... There's some talented Obama people who are left in, in New York. Yeah, that is true. Not yeah. naming names. I mean, and, and it seems that what you're saying, Glenn, is that he's going to have to get a scrappy team of upstarts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's going to be like Firefly, He's going to come show. in and moneyball it. But he's also saying, look, dude's 72 years old. Yeah. Remember when that used to be a factor? Remember when, like, before Hillary got into the race, it was, is she not too old? Look, I've seen and Joe Biden's legs. He has the legs of a 45-year-old man. So he is wow. uh, he is personally fit and ready to go. But That's really interesting. Under what auspices did you see Joe Biden's <laughs> I'm afraid legs? I'm not. A, I, if I told you, you not at liberty would, to say, I would lose my hard pass. <laughs> wow. Uh, what, what what happens at the his, VP's it, residence you know, stays at the it VP's was his residence? Par- it was the annual party where he runs right. around with a gun and squirts people. A super soaker. Let's it was be a clear. super soaker that we all were were beaten up by the by Breitbart for being complete sellouts. So well, I mean, uh, the shrimp the, was really good. <laughs> as it always is. Yes. Right. Look, these candidates, their campaigns are reflective of who they are. And this is a good segue to talk a little bit about your Hillary Clinton piece, Glenn, which was... Is it ever? Listen, man, <laughs> we've been looking for that up, like opening, as we do every week on Podcasts for America. How do we get the Glenn Thrush mention in? Good point. This weekend, that, that mention has come conveniently in the form of Hillary Clinton's campaign as the sort of decision to run for president. 
is the way in which a candidate handles that is kind of a bellwether for how they're going to run their campaign. I mean, Glenn, do you yeah, think, that I think that's true? Look, you know, I think a lot of the uh, look at the Hillary process last year, you know, she stayed in Whitehaven and there was this procession of people coming, giving her all kinds of advice, some of it unsolicited, some of it uh, solicited, like David Pluff, Obama's former campaign manager, senior advisor in the White House, told her not to waste 2015. So she probably spoke with, you know, I'm told four or five dozen people before she made the decision. Very highly deliberative person, talks to, seeks a lot of counsel. That's turned out to be a real pain in the ass in terms of running a campaign, just as it was in 2008. We reported, Annie Carney and myself last week, reported on some real serious dissonance within the campaign, particularly between Hillary and her new strategist slash pollster, Joel Benenson, another veteran of the Obama campaign. Benenson, remember, was part of that really disciplined Obama team, and they were focused pretty relentlessly on message. They had a candidate who was extraordinarily disciplined and good at staying on message, and they had an entire team that took as sort of a point of pride keeping out of what they viewed as the daily news cycle, right? The problem is Hillary Clinton is not that candidate, has never been that kind of candidate. She'll talk to her official advisors during the daytime in a clean, smart, deliberative process and then blow it up at night, kind of a, uh, what is it, a reverse, not Rapunzel, who was the... Uh, a reverse Rapunzel is known as no, G.I.D. Not a reverse Rapunzel. <laughs> never mind. We'll retract the reverse Rapunzel. I'm missing my Greek mythological reference. Um, but anyway... A triple sow cow? (laughs) Never mind. The problem is she gets on the phone and starts talking with people. She reads the papers, checks in with her electronic devices, as we well know, listens to Sidney Blumenthal. I mean, the real real interesting thing about the emails is what they really illuminate is not from yet anyway, any criminality or anything diabolical. Right, it's that she's still talking to Sidney Blumenthal and Lanny Davis. Yeah, it just, it illuminates the problems with her process, and that is she tends to keep the window open too much so the bats fly in. You know, and her and Benenson uh, have not gotten along very well. She doesn't really view him as the kind of central, central character that she tends to want. She wanted somebody much more like David Axelrod, a guy who had a message to push. But the problem is Hillary Clinton has always had trouble framing a message outside of her gender, her competence, and her, you know, her general capacity to lead. But wait, can I just stop you because, like. I just feel like, are we sometimes being too hard about the message, right? Donald Trump has trucker hats that say, make America great, and that's it. And nobody's asking him what his message is or to dig deeper, right? Like Hillary Clinton has actually been pretty specific on policy proposals about addressing income inequality, about furthering the Obama agenda into Mm -hmm. the next administration. I mean, like, and yet we're still like, why are you running for president? Yeah, I think that Glenn is right, though, that she kind of has this grab bag of sort of blandly Democratic proposals, many of which she's gone just a little bit to the left of Barack Obama, but not so far as left as Bernie Sanders. And I'm not sure that she's kind of come forward. And and maybe this is just a matter of time. At some point, she'll, you know, come forward with the slogan and the overarching, this is what we need to do with government. But I, I think that he's right that that's not... She's not coming forward and saying, this is what I need to do to this country. She's coming forward and saying, I am the person who needs to lead And she country. said it, her, you know, in yeah. some of our interviews, she has said it herself to people that she's putting out all these proposals. They're getting a one-day hearing. We, we quote somebody she spoke with over the summer out in the Hamptons who said that uh, she herself is expressing the frustration that's not cohering into a message. And, you know, Alex, the point you make about the hat, I'll never, to me, the, my favorite quote of the entire cycle is that Frank Luntz quote. Do you remember that? After the first debate, the focus group came out. And one of the focus group participants says, he's going to make America great again. And Luntz says, why, why, why do you know that to be true? And he says, well, it's right there on his hat. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, Self-explanatory. Well, yeah. Well, so <laughs> Hillary that's doesn't it. even have a hat. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. Says, I have a hat. Keep America going while making marginal improvements. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, I think like if we're talking about who actually has a specific plan to actually make America great again in their eyes, Hillary Clinton's outlined one. But in this season of like, I mean, I feel like it's really messy. Yeah. I feel like this between the Biden stuff and the, the 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 Clinton stuff and the emails and and Trump like this just feels like the most undisciplined chaotic sort of who the fuck knows presidential campaign I think in you a coined, long I think time. you've just I think you've just coined the title for the book the who the fuck knows campaign <laughs> Before we get to our next segment all of our fantastic listeners out there what do you think of this campaign cycle is it the who the fuck knows campaign cycle is it is it more disciplined than we can see from our myopic media lens tweet us with your thoughts at pod for america so speaking of the who the fuck knows cycle glenn and annie i mean there's a battle i don't even know if we can call a skirmish what is it a free-for-all happening in the house to determine who's going to take john boehner's place and the latest rumor is that boehner's not actually going to be able to leave by october 30th because no one's sure who's going to take the reins yeah, it's a it's like a foobar convention at Clown College. I don't know what it is. It's something. What's a foobar convention? It's a convention about things that are foobar. What's foobar? Fucked, Fucked up, up beyond, beyond all recognition. recognition. Wow, how did I not know that? It's World War II. <laughs> it's like a because you were not in that. World War II. Was there a Hillary email where she asks what foobar is? Yeah, there was something. I think there might be. That makes me feel like I'm in good company. And then someone <laughs> and then someone sent her uh, a copy of Game Change. Okay, so, but like, we talk about things being in disarray. I love it when you're plaintive. Things being unpredictable. You're you're feeling very plaintive today. I can sense it. I am. I just, it's insane. It's insane insane what's happening in the world right now. Alex, you can't fix it. I know you want to, but you can't. I can. I can. I'm like the guy on Lost, the doctor on Lost. (laughs) I I can do it. I just need a golden retriever and a passage, a wormhole through time. (laughs) Or or de Blasio. Or, or, Or Bill de Blasio. Your magic de Blasio. What, what do we think is going to happen here, guys? And can I just point out that leadership in the Republican Party is now an empty chair and a, a, no hand holding a gavel and Donald Trump. That's who's leading the Republican Party right now. We have one, uh, one House of uh, Congress that is running by a parliamentary ethos and the other one that's running by a oh, standard two-party thing. How very Grecian you got, of you. Thank you. you got three distinct parties in here, and they, it's irreconcilable. You've got a Democratic left block of 177, 180 votes, right, that votes solidly with some leakage, but not a ton. You've got kind of a right wing that depends is between 50 and 100. And then you have sort of a centrist right, which wears depends, right? Uh, (laughs) And they're, God knows, 80 to 100. So you have these two. There's no single entity that you can really reasonably call the House Republican Conference. It doesn't exist, and it can exist. The minute Paul Ryan raises his hand and says, I want this thing, he immediately incurs the wrath of 50 or 60 people who say, hell no, and then try to extract concessions out of him. There's simply no way that anyone can take this job and expect to really run the show. It's just, uh, it's ungovernable. I think we're at the point here that you've got to have a coalition government that includes Democrats. I mean, you, the, the basic system by which we've run this thing for 150 years is completely broken down. I think we got to recognize we're at a watershed moment. And it is. It's amazing to me that people are actually talking about this, right? Creating a coalition of essentially some Democrats who will support a Republican. And it's it's just, I, I think that Glenn's right, that, that it's this bizarre moment that it's been broken and broken and broken and broken and it's finally broken down. 
And yeah, I think that if somebody wanted to come in and actually be a speaker that would unite the two conservative factions there, it would be like a suicide mission. I don't know why you would do it, except because you didn't really care about your political career after it. I mean, Boehner's in such a fuck it mindset, right? Uh, and I think he's really, really enjoying. And he this. can he can stay wait, for wait. as long as they can call leadership. They can. You they, think he's enjoying this? Oh, I think he is. I mean, look, he's being really. Yeah, he's being tortured at the end here. But I mean, like, like I a think darkly ironic way. Uh, you know, I sat down with him earlier this year, right after his other. It was like minutes after he had his uh, his last leadership vote. And let me just say, I mean, like his entire position, his entire legacy is being validated right now. Now. Right. Yeah. It's told you, know, you so moments. I, when I wrote that piece, it was, you know, the whole top of the piece was like some people are saying he's the worst and weakest speaker in history. Now it's just I think people can now he's he's thrown open the doors and everybody can see how fucked up this is. Right. Yeah. So to a certain extent, like Boehner now has everybody else on his side, including the White House. They're saying nice things about him now. So I just think. Boehner has a lot, and there's some talk about him doing a debt ceiling extension and something maybe a little more ambitious. I will tell you, if anything's going to happen that Boehner's going to cut a deal on, we're not going to know about it because there's just no way to let any of this stuff leak. We saw what happened with the grand bargain. Wait, so you're saying like that in some weird sort of Twilight Zone fashion, the fact that Boehner now is vindicated yes, to me, and, and yeah. can sort of show his own party, see how screwed up this is, might give him a little bit more running room Correct. to pursue uh, something sizable? To, to me, the uh, most valuable commodity in Washington, D.C., are, are low expectations. And, yeah, well. and I think like the minute people aren't paying attention to you, that's when you can actually get something done. Look at look at what Obama did when Podesta came into the White House right. and really put some put some steel in the spine in terms of the executive action. Shit started to happen. Right. And Obama arguably really saved his legacy and, and the second half of his presidency. I think Boehner is in a very similar position to where Obama was in 2013 and 2014. His legacy is shit right now. If anything that he can throw on top of this, any deal that he can possibly cut, any bullet he can take, if they kick him out, fine. Better, I'm telling you, it's a better outcome for John Boehner to be thrown out by his own people at this point than to go quietly into the night. How much do you think he's talking with, like, Nancy Pelosi? Tons. He, they talk a lot. When the book is written, I think you're going to find out that he's talking to Obama a shit ton more than we realized. He certainly has a really good relationship with Katie Beer and Fallon, mm -hmm. who is the, the Ledge Affairs director. Uh, he's always talked with people in the White House. He was very friendly with Bill Daly, the uh, much maligned former chief of staff. But I think... Also a great reporter's source. A great reporter's source. Great quote, too. But he talks with Pelosi a ton. He, you know, and, he, and he, him and Steny Hoyer get along fairly well. So it's like something's going on here. I think the Republicans are really going to be in open revolt after this. And the other thing about it is if Boehner cuts a big deal, can you imagine? It actually is great for everybody. Yeah. Because then all the candidates get to, you know, then Marco Rubio finally is able to assert his bona fides as a Tea Party guy by shitting all over Boehner. Wow. That was such a crazy, like, <laughs> remember I, when I was little, I used to read the Washington Post for the Garfield cartoon strips, and then there was, like, this chess column where they'd be like, pawn takes queen. Queen, you know, whatever does to, I don't play chess, does something yeah. to the rook. And you're like, what the does I think I think mean? in this case, it's Glenn, you just did that yeah, for Congress. This is the eleventh dimensional chess. Well, in this case, it's episode. Pa it's pawn takes bond rating. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> I gotta say, man, that was so illuminating. Annie, don't you just feel like, oh, man, we gotta get Mark out of here. We gotta Glennon. get Mark out of here. Yes. <laughs> Not at all. We're kidding. True, but yes. Everybody who's kidding. listening, yes. we love Mark. But Glenn, it has been epic to have you on the program today. It has been epic and if anybody there. isn't reading Glenn Thrush and his amazing pieces in Politico magazine, they're sleeping. <laughs> Thank you for your time, Glenn. We know that your days are busy and your nights are long and filled with sadness and NyQuil. <laughs> yeah, so, something like that. So we appreciate your efforts 
and your thoughts. It was on great. This great not seeing America. you. <laughs> That's the best way. <laughs> the best way to hang out with me. Yeah. Um, okay, we're just gonna take one quick break from all this talk of chaos and solutions to hear about one of our wonderful sponsors. When we come back, we will launch into our very special final segment with our guest, Senator Lindsey Graham. Every weeknight, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. Sure, that's a lot of searching and it takes a lot of work, but even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life and what you see from your front porch is directly connected to the national news. Watch Rachel as she connects the dots and covers America's news one story at a time. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. All right, we're back, and it is time for a very special guest. You may know him as the senior senator from South Carolina. I know him as one of the Americans in government who remains incredibly positive in his attitude. He has White House ambitions, and he took some time away from the campaign trail to join us right here on Podcast for America. That is right. I'm talking about Senator Lindsey Graham. Mark and I caught up with him just a few days ago. First of all, thank you very much for joining us. I know you're a, a longtime listener of Podcast for America. And, Absolutely. Um, you know, I go back to the 40s. We, so do we, actually. Yeah, at least our parents do. Senator, can I ask? We're talking about the unsettled nature of the political field, but, but certainly the Republican Party in Washington is chaotic at best. <laughs> and as someone who has overseen some good times, some bad times, and some in-between times, within the Republican Party. What do you make of this particular moment and Kevin McCarthy's withdrawal from the speaker's race, John Boehner's abrupt decision to drop the gavel, as it were, and the uncertainty that seems to be clouding the party at present? My guess is that in the summer of uh, 2016, we won't be talking about the House uh, chaos. And if we are, we're toast. So my hope is that we'll find somebody to become speaker that can get us back in business in the House and realize that you're not going to defund Planned Parenthood with President Obama being president, try to pass the budget, try to make sure that we don't default on the debt, and just putting the House back into more of an orderly uh, process. If we can accomplish that, then I think we'll be in a good shape in 2016. If this continues to deteriorate in the House, then I think we're hurting our chances uh, presidentially. As someone who has been very vocal from a very early point about Benghazi and the seriousness of the incident, obviously, but also getting to the bottom of it, have you been frustrated at all by just all of the recent noise around the committee, both Congressman McCarthy's statements and now the staffer who left and who also basically echoed the, the notion that it's been a Hillary Clinton-centered witch hunt? McCarthy put his foot in his mouth, not the first guy to do that. <laughs> Bottom line is, I just want when it's all over with, to explain before, during, and after why nobody's been fired for not resourcing the consulate. How could you have turned down all their security requests? The British left, the Red Cross left. We were still in business. Why was Secretary Clinton not on television five days after that, other than Susan Rice? And just fill in all the blanks and see where it takes us. If you were just a political strategist and you had to pick between Benghazi and the email scandal, which is more hurtful, do you think, to Hillary Clinton? Uh, Benghazi, because that's just the closest she's been to Commander-in-Chief. She was responsible for consulate security. She said she didn't know about the additional security request. That's always puzzled me. Surely she knew that the British withdrew from Benghazi in June, and the consulate had been previously attacked. So there's always been a disconnect, in my mind, between the level of security 
on the ground and what was going on in the State Department. So I think that's the closest she's come to the 3 a.m. phone call. Her handling of this situation, I think, is more in line with uh, commander-in-chief responsibilities than the emails. Do you, I mean, just sort of getting to maybe a broader issue of just seriousness. I mean, I don't think anyone would ever accuse you of being an unserious candidate or actually talking about unserious things, I mean, especially on foreign policy. Have you been at all surprised at the level, frankly, of unseriousness that has dominated so much of your primary, especially around Donald Trump, and, and obviously the, the media are implicit in that, too? We've hit a level of unseriousness that nobody believed we could reach. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> Is that a congratulations? Falling apart. <laughs> and we're talking silly stuff. And I haven't had one question about the debt. I mean, we have $18 trillion of debt in climbing. Republicans have got to give. Democrats have got to give. Age adjust, flatten out the tax code, take some deductions away from my friends on the Republican side, put it on debt. We know what to do. But, yeah, I'm really surprised that, you know, we had a good foreign policy discussion somewhat at the CNN debate. But generally speaking, it's been a pretty shallow contest mm-hmm. between Ben Carson and Donald Trump's statements. We're not talking about what would you do as president to deal with the debt, the terrorism, ISIL. What would you do to destroy it? About the things that every American uh, is invested in thought. Senator, i got to ask you, you seem like someone that relishes politics, that enjoys the process. I mean, yeah, that's shown absolutely, in your spirit. And it, there don't seem to be a lot of people like you either running for office or in office. I mean, there is a sense that we get that inside the halls of Congress, there's so much strife, there's so much disdain for governance. I mean, I wonder, as yeah. a Republican who seems to like governance and believes in certainly a limited role of government, but the role of government, is this a weird time for you? Yeah, in, in this sense, I mean, Ted Kennedy, he was very liberal, but he was very effective. He loved his job. You know, Senator Thurman loved his job. I mean, I like the idea of engaging with my colleagues to see if you can move the ball down the field. It's the art of the possible that makes me uh, want to get up every morning. I'm frustrated with the possibilities that exist in government today to turn things around while you still can. You know, that's what drives my thinking. There's so many people seem to be drawn to politics about what you won't do. And I don't know why you want to be in. I don't know why you want to be part of a process that you hate. I actually like democracy. It's okay for the other side to get something. That doesn't keep me up at night, as long as you move the ball for it. If you could eliminate one Republican from the field right now (laughs) with your magic wand, who would it be? Come on, That's answer the question. That's a really good question, and i got to think about it. <laughs> you have so many to choose from. I know exactly from. who your so answer is. There are so many to choose not... from, Senator. Yeah, well, all I can say is that the way to eliminate somebody is for the voters to do it, not me wish them away. <laughs> but we're giving you the power, Senator. I know and... you are, but like George Washington, I turn it down. Wow, okay. <laughs> wow. You're such a politician. What a statesman. That's very, very noble of you, sir. <laughs> Even though it's tempting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Senator, what about the Democratic side? I mean, what do you think is going to happen, and, and how optimistic are you or pessimistic that uh, Vice President Biden is going to enter the race? Yeah, I think Joe will probably get in. I think he, I know he's always wanted to be president. You're not going to find a more decent person in American political life than Joe Biden. He loves the process. I think he has something to offer. Uh, I know he believes he has something to offer, and if you're ever thinking about running for president on either side of the aisle, now's the time to do it. You know, Hillary Clinton will not be easy. You know, she's the first woman who has a very serious chance of winning the White House. Uh, that matters. I know that matters. 
But I think people are going to be looking for the most well-rounded person they can find uh, to be president of the United States. And I think Joe is going to really look at doing this. Senator, here's another question you conduct, but it's actually a little more fun. Who, If you could isolate <laughs> okay. or identify a absolute high point of the campaign for you and low point of the campaign for you, what would you say? The high point is when I break through in New Hampshire and we haven't reached there. Mm-hmm. I think the low point of the campaign is when we got wrapped around the axle about illegal immigrants being mostly drug dealers and rapists, mm-hmm. and we followed that whole thought process. I am so discouraged back then about, come on, our party, we can do better than this. This is not what you want the next president of the United States to be talking about. But uh, I think the high point of the campaign is when Senator McCain comes up to New Hampshire and we do town hall meetings together. Thank God for New Hampshire is the last place where big money can't determine the outcome, and you never want to lose these early primaries. Senator, first of all, best of luck to you. Thank you for being a friend of the podcast. I assume that within the first, what, 25 days of your administration, you will grant Podcast for America <laughs> uh, one of the first interviews There will be a spot correct? on the lawn for the podcast. <laughs> we thank you, Senator. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Thanks for your time. Thank you, sir. We appreciate it. All right, that's all for Podcast for America. Thanks to our producer, Jocelyn Frank. Thanks to Laura Mayer, AC Valdez, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Pod for America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. And please tell your friends about us too, and your enemies for that matter. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment whenever you subscribe. It helps other people discover this great show. For Mark Leibovich and Annie Lowry, I'm Alex Wagner here in the Big Apple. We'll talk to you next time, and thanks for listening.